Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Up to this point in the Sunday lectionary, our protagonist Abraham has been doing pretty well, to say the least. We've seen him set out from his home country with phenomenal courage to a totally unknown destination in obedience to God. And last week we saw him offer lavish, over-the-top hospitality to God when those three mysterious visitors came to visit him in his tent. He's well on the way to setting the pattern for us in our pilgrimage in obedience and discipleship to Christ. And so it would be understandable, easy really, to forget or to gloss over the fact that Abraham is a human being like any one of us, that he too had devastating sins and detours that led him off the path. So we have three points to cover today. First of all is the detours in our journey. Second, the mystery of repentance. And third, the sacrament of reconciliation. So here's our first point, the detours in our journey. For Abraham, one of those detours had a name, Ishmael. You see, a few chapters ago, Sarai, his wife, made the very convenient suggestion that since they didn't seem to be having any luck with this producing the child of promise business, and they weren't getting any younger after all, maybe Abraham should just take her maidservant Hagar and make himself an heir through her. It doesn't look like she had to twist his arm for very long before Abraham yielded, dutiful husband that he was. And to be fair, it sounds reasonable enough, given the circumstances and the apparent radio silence on God's part for more than 20 years at this point. But God had never suggested to Abraham and Sarah to do that. They had taken the initiative on this one themselves. They had simply grown impatient and tried to take a shortcut to the promise by taking matters into their own hands. That was the Babylonian way, the wide and easy way that leads to destruction rather than the narrow and difficult way of trusting God that leads to life. As they say, it's one thing to take the man out of Babylon, but another thing entirely to take the Babylon out of the man. Have you ever done that? Tried to take a shortcut in life and found out that it became an agonizing detour? I'm one of those directionally challenged people myself and often find myself doing that. Let's get out of the way of this traffic on, on the railway. And then I find myself 10 extra minutes in, in traffic purgatory. It happens. Now fast forward a few years in Abraham and Sarah's story. And by the grace of God and on his timeline, they have received the child of promise, and his name is Isaac. And when he comes of age, they throw him one of those good old-fashioned weaning parties, as one does in those days. And here at the party, Sarah sees something that displeases her. The text simply says, Ishmael played with Isaac, or Ishmael laughed, depending on your translation. It sounds innocent enough to our ears, maybe, but ancient commentators, the Church fathers, looking at this passage, universally see dark undertones. 
The word itself in Hebrew can apparently also mean struck, kicked, or mocked, or worse. At any rate, whatever happened there, Ishmael's ongoing influence with Isaac was threatening to interfere with the promised inheritance of the covenant, the means by which God would bring salvation to the whole world. And so however harsh it sounds, Sarah had a point. The child of the slave woman cannot be heir with the child of promise. And Abraham, as leader of the family, had to do something about it. He had to own up to the consequences of his detour and get the family back on track with God's plan or else risking everything that they had already suffered for. The text here notes that Abraham was very displeased at the thing on account of his son, and no wonder. But when God appears to him and confirms Sarah's judgment and promises to take care of Hagar and Ishmael for his sake, Abraham again obeys his Lord without another word and sets things right by sending them away with as many provisions as they could carry. And truthfully, God did take care of them. Ishmael went on to become a great nation in his own right, and his descendants, many generations down the line, would hear, and many would accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed by the descendants of Isaac, the child of promise. But of course, Abraham didn't know all that at the time. Now, I have a hunch that this may just have been the hardest thing Abraham ever had to do in his life, at least up to this point. Harder even than leaving his father and his homeland behind. Harder than the 500-some-odd-mile trek through the desert wilderness to get from Haran to Canaan. Harder than all the fierce battles he had to fight along the way. And I doubt it would be going too far to say so. It's just something about the bond between a parent and their children between a father and his son that would have made this action particularly brutal, having to send them away into the desert wilderness on account of his own failure because he decided to take matters into his own hands. It must have been utterly heartbreaking. Can you imagine? Our sins and our missteps, our detours, however light and innocent they may seem at the time that we commit them, can often have devastating long-term consequences that only grow worse the longer we take before taking responsibility for them. You know, I have to admit, to this point in the Genesis narrative, I feel admiration, maybe even a little bit of awe for Abraham, the hero. He's courageous, he's humble, he's faithful, he's full of integrity, all of these things that I wish that I was. But it's here, at this most vulnerable moment, when he's called back from his detour by God, that I feel like I can finally connect with Abraham, the human being. And my admiration becomes quiet respect. And it's here that Abraham himself, I imagine, must have come to a deeper respect and knowledge and love for his God, as he now knows him experientially, not just as the God who calls him out of Haran and Babylon, but as the God who receives the repentant sinner, who faithfully brings us back on course, and who redeems even our detours. That's a whole new level of knowledge. 
And that brings us to our second point, the mystery of repentance. I've become more and more convinced in my life that repentance truly is a mystery because without the grace of God, each one of us would go on justifying and denying our sins right up till doomsday. The mystery of repentance is when God condescends to us with his divine light, opening up our spiritual eyes to the short-sighted shortcuts that we've taken along our path and who mercifully calls us back unto the narrow path. As hard as it is for us, oftentimes to be honest with ourselves and to take responsibility when we've gone on a detour, we have to acknowledge that active, unrepentant sin of any kind cannot coexist with the promises and the vows that we made at our baptism to God. As the Scriptures say, anyone who goes on sinning is a slave to sin, and the child of the slave woman cannot be heir with the child of promise. That's the point of all Jesus' sayings in today's gospel lesson also that sound so harsh to us. Whoever loves father or mother or even their son more than me is not worthy of me. So then what do we do when God opens our eyes to our destructive detours? That's our third point, the sacrament of reconciliation. For many of us, this sacrament is shrouded in a lot of mystery and stale old controversy and misconceptions of every kind. If you were raised as a traditional Roman Catholic on the one hand, maybe for you it's connected with some bad memories or it's left a bad taste in your mouth because of uh, having to have forced confessions that you didn't want to make. Or if you're raised Protestant, maybe it might seem suspect due to all the old legalistic and forensic vocabulary surrounding it. But it's really not so convoluted or arcane as it's often made to sound. And it should be emphasized here that as Anglicans, the place of the sacrament is not checking off a legal box uh, to get things right. It's much more of a pastoral ministry, a means by which we can pursue our discipleship and our obedience and love to Jesus Christ and to know him better. But the essence of this sacrament, the outward and visible sign of it, is simple. It's just a good apology. A good apology. That's it. In the inward and spiritual grace, as you approach God with a broken and contrite heart, is the power of Calvary, of Jesus on the cross poured out for you, for the forgiveness of your particular sins, and the restoration of intimacy with Christ and with his church, which is why these days we call the sacrament reconciliation. You know, that word has a fascinating etymology. My New Testament professor in seminary, you've met him before, uh, Dr. Gar Anderson, called it a one-word story. That Latin word cilia in reconciliation is Latin for eyelashes. Yes, you heard me right, eyelashes. So to be reconciled is to be brought eyelash to eyelash again. It's a beautiful image of a restored and healed relationship. That's what the sacrament is about. So what does a good confession look like? 
the traditional manuals for confession emphasize three essential parts, contrition, confession, and amendment of life. And although it's still true, this language is antiquated and a little old-fashioned for most of us today. But Father Gritter recently shared with me a set of guidelines he gleaned from his psychological studies that really blew my mind when I heard them. You know, I really love when psychology rediscovers something that the church has been telling people for 2,000 years. It's, uh, it, it's just exciting for me. It's called the seven A's of a good apology. The seven A's of a good apology. And it perfectly sums up what's needed for a good confession, both to God and to other people. So you might want to take some notes. First of all, address everyone involved by your wrongdoing. This is why we don't just recommend confessing to God in private, in your bedroom, but also in the presence of a priest who is acting as the representative, the representative of the whole church gathered. You see, back in the days, the church would, uh, they would all confess their sins to one another, just like we were assembled right here. You just confess everything that you had done up in front of everybody, and everybody would say, I forgive you, my brother or my sister. Uh, now, for obvious reasons, since the church has grown and there's a lot of people you don't know here, that's no longer a good pastoral practice, uh, but rather the priest stands in as the representative and is under the seal so he can never tell another living soul till his death uh, what has been said there. But the idea is to address all those whom we wrong by our sins, which is not just God, but our neighbors too. Secondly, the second A is avoid. Avoid making excuses for yourself or any qualifications or deflections of responsibility or mentioning what other people did when you come to confess. Just come straight out and say what you did. Third is to admit. Admit specifically what was done wrong and how often it occurred without becoming graphic. It's hard to be specific. Fourth is to acknowledge the hurt. This is what the church calls contrition or sorrow for what we have done in the way that it's harmed others. The fifth A is accept. Accept the consequences. Now, this is also difficult. Sin always has consequences. Usually, it's just the natural cause and effect, right? I do something foolish, and reality gives me feedback. But it can often be the consequences imposed on us by another, and a humble confession, a humble apology means accepting whatever those just consequences might be. Sixth is critical, and it's alter, alter behavior. This is known in the church as the intention of amendment of life, right? When we come to confession, we can't be holding our fingers behind our back and planning already to do, to do the same thing over again as soon as we confess it. That nullifies the apology, Right? We have to at least unambiguously and unreservedly renounce that sin and intend not to do it again, to take active measures against it in the future. And finally, we must ask, ask forgiveness. This is often, strangely enough, the hardest one because the ball is no longer in our court. We've said all we have to say, and now we leave it to the other person that awkward silence can be crucifying, as it were. Raise your hand now 
if you've ever experienced a BS apology, a non-apology apology. That should be everybody in the room. We've all experienced a BS apology before. Now, one or more of those seven A's was missing, wasn't it? I'm sorry you felt that way, we might have heard, or I'm sorry if you were offended by my remarks, casting blame on the person's sensitivity rather than on their own actions. I'm sorry those annoying cats keep making me blow up at you. That one might be a little personal. Oftentimes, a bad uh, apology can be translated, I'm sorry I got caught, right? The standard politician's apology. (laughs) Or finally, the classic, sorry, but I'm already making plans to do it again. We know it instantly in our guts when we hear one of these BS apologies or when we've given one. I know I've given a few of them myself. But the worst thing is that we've given them to God too. The God to whom all hearts are already open, all secrets known, and from whom nothing is hid. God who loved us and set us free at the cost of his own blood so that we might live no longer for ourselves but for him who died for us. Most of us don't remember the event of our baptisms and feeling forgiven of our sins. Usually it happens at our infancy, but all of us have the opportunity to experience it renewed in the sacrament of reconciliation. I once knew a priest who had heard confessions for many years, and I asked him if he ever regretted giving absolution to somebody's confession. Seems like an odd kind of question, but we priests think about that from time to time. And he told me about someone. He kept their name and all their personal details, confidential, of course, as he was under the seal. So we'll just refer to that person as the penitent. So this person, this penitent, had confessed to cheating on their spouse some decades before. Of course, the penitent explained they had long since put that relationship away. It was behind them. And, well, the penitent begged me, my friend said, begged me not to make them tell their spouse what they had done. It would be heartbreaking. And besides, they were happy together now. Though my friend felt somewhat uneasy about it at first, he eventually convinced himself that maybe the penitent was right. After all, AA counsels you not to make selfish confessions that you would know or that you know would just hurt the person more by sharing it, right? Just to get relief for yourself. And so, finally, he gave the absolution and let them go in peace. But he almost immediately regretted it. And for the next few nights, he said he could hardly sleep. Why? I asked him. That's the most foundational relationship, he said, that a person can have other than the relationship with God himself. If that was your spouse, wouldn't you want the opportunity to be trusted enough to be respected enough, to be told what had eaten up your spouse on the inside for all of those long years. I can only imagine, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine that that penitence's spouse already knew or at least suspected all along what had happened. Usually our body language betrays us and nobody's as good a liar as they think they are. But I want you just to imagine how much grace would have flooded into that marriage, he said, if the penitent had had the courage to approach their spouse and say, my dear, I'm so sorry. I've made such a mess of things, and this must break your heart. It breaks my heart, too. I broke my solemn vows to you, 
and I tried to hide it from you, and I alone am at fault. I wish I had never done it, and I deserve whatever you might think or whatever you might decide to do. And while I know I don't deserve it, if you can find it in yourself with God's help, please forgive me. And then to be told in spite of it all, I know, my dear, I've always known. It does hurt. It has hurt. But I forgive you, and I love you. And I respect the courage it took to tell me. How strong would their marriage be if they could say, we've been through hell together and we made it out the other side. We've seen each other at our worst and we love each other nonetheless. That's the opportunity that God is longing to receive from us in the sacrament of reconciliation. It's easy to say that we believe that God forgives sins. We say it every week in the creed. And maybe it is easy to believe that God forgives other people's sins. But do you know, personally and experientially, the God who forgives your sins, who brings back your wanderings, who receives this particular penitent prodigal son, who redeems the worst of your detours, has seen the worst of who you are and who you could be, and who still loves and accepts you all the same. My friends, the door is wide open. The ball is in our courts. Come and know the God who reconciles sinners. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.